from the studios of Latitude Media and Canary Media. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst. It's interesting. You could build like a, gl- a glossary of um, vocabulary that is like applicable to one financial audience and is banned when you're talking to a different financial audience. <laughs> I, have a, I have a cheat sheet, yeah, which I give to a lot of these entrepreneurs saying like, hey, this is what you can say when you're in front of a VC. This is what you can say when you're in front of a project financier. You did it. You designed and engineered a brand new technology that's going to help combat climate change. You're ready to prove it in the field. You've got a real customer. Now comes the fun part. First of a kind financing. The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, costs, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes, or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. I'm Shail Khan. I invest in revolutionary climate technologies at Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. All right, so at this point, I think it's a truism that financing a first-of-a-kind project, a hardware project anyway, sucks. It just does. It's basically definitionally difficult. You've never built the thing before, at least at that scale. So it's inherently risky, or at least will be viewed as such. And the economics are basically never as good as you expect them to be in the long term because it is a first of a kind thing. And your most readily available form of money, which is venture capital, corporate equity from people like me, is also basically the most expensive capital out there. But you have some technical proof. Hopefully you have real customers who are proving real demand. And this seems like the kind of thing that the world of finance would have figured out. We're great at transferring risk and creating esoteric structures. Where there's a finance vacuum, there's usually some intrepid investor class coming along to solve it. And yes, there have been some attempts at solutions here, but I would argue nothing truly scalable yet across technology types that has emerged and and is a universal solution. But it is a big problem. If we're going to bring dozens or hundreds of new technologies to market over the next decade to solve the harder problems of climate change, we're going to have to have hundreds or thousands of -of first-of-a-kind financing bottlenecks to break through. So I have this conversation partially in the hopes that someone cracks the code once and for all, but in the absence of that, there are still actually a bunch of ways to get it done. I don't mean to be overly negative here. People do build first-of-a-kind things, and they will continue to, and I think it will continue to get easier as time goes on. Um, But the way that they get built generally are more creative, typically, and more situation-specific than you might like. They do work, though. So let's talk through them. For this one, I brought in David Ye, who's been thinking basically nonstop about first-of-a-kind financing for years. He's a climate OG. He's been at the White House, at Generation Investment Management most recently, uh, at CIBC, which is on the debt side. Uh, and, And he has a lot of thoughts on how to do and how not to do folk. So with no further ado, here's David. David, welcome. 
Thank you for having me. Um, Shale, I've wanted to do this for a long time. You know, first time caller, long time listener to the uh, Catalyst podcast. Well, I appreciate it. And I've been wanting to do a conversation on on first of a kind project finance for a long time. People have been asking me to do it actually for a long time for good reason, because I think universally everybody appreciates that like this is this is hard. This is a problem to the extent that capital markets have really emerged in support of climate tech. This is probably the one area that to me still feels like the biggest gap, but not unsolvable. So I think our point is to talk about what are the what are the challenges with financing a first of a kind thing, but also what are some of the emergent solutions. But let's start with why it's hard. Can you just sort of like give an overview of, I think it's probably obvious that it is hard, but not to everybody, exactly why first of a kind has been such a tough nut to crack. Do you mind if we start off like saying, why is it important? Because I think folk now is increasingly becoming a term, but people don't often speak about why it's important. They just kind of say, oh, it, it needs to get done. Sure, we could talk. That's a that's a good point. Also, we should say you think focus. I've never heard anybody actually pronounce the acronym, but now I'm going to start using it. Oh, it's actually even worse. Uh, me and a few other, let's say, folk evangelists or entrepreneurs have been calling ourselves folkers. Folkers, yeah, mother folker. Okay, <laughs> all right. So, so okay, briefly, I think it's probably self-explanatory. But you tell me if not, like, why is folk important? Okay, I, I think the first thing, like. The climate crisis is an existential crisis, and we need to deploy, deploy, deploy to keep ourselves at, you know, let's say two degrees or two and a half degrees Celsius. And right now, a lot of climate tech, hard tech companies do not make their impact till they become infrastructure, till they start, you know, bending steel, laying concrete. And in order for us to have gigatons of carbon abatement, we need to deploy gigawatts, giga panels, giga everything. And you can't deploy anything at the scale of the billions until you do the first one. And the first one is by far the hardest. And for me, I've been doing climate for, I would say, 20, 25 years. So I'm really aging myself. And people are talking about, oh, what is the climate solution, right? And a lot of people just talk about almost as it's a technology vertical. Is it green hydrogen? Is it green cement? Is it more solar? Is it more wind? To me, I think one of the biggest climate solutions is folk which is a horizontal financial solution that can essentially be the one financial solution to help catalyze them all. Because most of these climate tech, hard tech companies, in order for them to start their path to making impact, they have to build their first of its kind factory or first of its kind project. And FOC is a financing approach that's applicable to geothermal, to energy storage, to cement, to getting it done. Yeah, maybe it's like, I'm thinking it's too obvious because this is the world I live in, right? Like I, mm-hmm. I specifically invest in companies that at some point in the future, generally after I invest, are going to have to build a first-of-a-kind thing. So I'm deep in it. But I, I think it's it's well put, the importance of, you know, the point being like we're going to need dozens, hundreds of new technologies to get to the type of infrastructure scale that you're talking about over the next couple of decades, every one of those is going to have to build a first of a kind at some point. Let's get back to why it's hard, though. What you know, their infrastructure finance is very mature. Why has it not solved the folk problem? The reason they haven't solved that problem is because folk is at the intersection between venture capital and infrastructure, and these are two asset classes 
that, for lack of a better word, are not well-suited to doing first of its kind. So for VC, is basically too expensive and likely too large or dilutive of a check for them to build a first-of-its-kind plant with venture dollars. And I'm saying most first-of-its-kind plants are in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And for the world of project finance and infrastructure, they have a different risk tolerance. So think putting on my hat as a debt provider, most debt lenders for project finance, they're focused on credit and risk management. And they're not going to... And the only, their return is getting their debt back plus interest. So if you are investing in the next Tesla, and Tesla is now, you know, what, $700, $800 billion company, they don't see any of that upside. It doesn't make a real difference to them. And, you know, to use that old maxim, you know, you're getting debt level returns for equity level risk. So that's one of the issues. And also, I think there's a bit of a cultural divide. So I think in order to create this bridge between venture capital and infrastructure, and you know, I, I like to call it venture infrastructure at times, you have to be able to translate. And if you look at venture capitalists and then look at project financiers, they speak different languages. They have kind of different risk tolerances. And it's hard to kind of get them to translate. So I, I remember, this is when I was still at the White House, there was a friend who was launching a new kind of groundbreaking geothermal company with a disruptive new technology. So I reached out to a friend of mine who worked at one of the most prominent energy infrastructure firms and just and gave him the pitch saying, oh, you should really talk to him. And the guys, and my friend at the, at the infrastructure firm says, if I see the word disruptive, innovative, I automatically can't <laughs> invest in it. That's funny. That that definitely like reflects the different language, right? Like in VC world, that's all you want to hear. In infrastructure and debt world, that's the last thing you want to hear. Yeah, it's just, and I think it's again they have different but equally valuable risk reward profiles, right? I, I thought one of the smartest things I've heard about the difference between venture capital and private equity and infrastructure is that I think if you're a great venture capital firm. You know, you're providing 20 plus percent returns for 10 years. If you're a great infrastructure firm, you're providing 15% or mid-teens returns for 20 years. Both pretty compelling, but they, how they make their money is different. Yeah. The way that I've described the, the, the because I think there also have been a bunch of attempts to like create vehicles for first of a kind, and some of them are, are still ongoing and may work. But I feel like the two places where everybody runs into a brick wall generally are one, the sort of the the risk reward on that first of a kind and and the challenge there often, it's not like the first of a kind project is the most lucrative project either, generally. There are exceptions to this, but oftentimes the first of a kind is at the beginning of the cost curve, right? Like whatever the thing is, is going to get only cheaper as you build more of it. But the first one is going to be the most expensive one you ever build. And it's not like you always have a customer who's ready to pay five times the ultimate price for the thing. And so it's not like the returns are so, so much better, but the risk is inherently higher because it is a first of a kind. And you can talk about how you can buy down that risk and so on. But like, just fundamentally, if you look at it purely as a financially moded infrastructure investor of one kind or another, that's a tough risk return equation for you to wrap your head around. And then the second problem, I think, is the sort of scale opportunity of it, which is that you know infrastructure capital generally bigger pools of capital than you see in in venture capital. They want to deploy a lot of money repeatedly 
into something that it doesn't need to be underwritten individually every single time, but almost by definition, first of a kind is a unique snowflake. And so you have an opportunity, you do a lot of work because you have to figure out how to underwrite it and understand the risk profile and so on. So you do all this work and your prize for doing all the work is you get to invest in one of them, at least at the start. And so those two things, I think, in combination have made it really difficult to exactly, as you said, like find that bridge between the world of private equity venture capital on one side and the world of infrastructure on the other side. So, so I think you just hit the nail on the head. I think for venture, most venture capitalists, first of its kind is probably the only of its kind project that they will be investing in. And for them, again, the risk reward does not make sense. Their capital is too expensive. A lot of this is kind of going outside their expertise. And then when you're trying to find that bridge to infrastructure investors and project financiers, first of its kind looks too risky. And this is something I kind of learned from my kind of good friends at Lancetech. In order to do first of its kind, to be an investor that's an anchor or a catalytic investor, you have to be long-term greedy. And I think that's understanding that the first is kind project you're doing is not the only project you're doing. You're doing the first is kind, so you can then do the second, third, and fourth. Like the, I think the common analogy and metaphor that I use to describe is that you're trying to invest into the next solar or invest in the next Tesla. And if you can get your first is kind right, you're on that path to do that. Right. Okay, so let's talk about, so obviously we're describing why it's hard and it is hard and everybody knows it's hard. Um, that said, lots of first of a kind things have gotten done. Uh, so it's not like it's impossible. So I think we should talk through the sort of categories. Like if you're, if you're a company who needs to build a first of a kind thing, what are the, what is the suite of options that is generally available to you today? And let's talk about the trade-offs amongst those. So the first option and and perhaps the one that actually I think has been the was the predominant option for sure in you know up through 2021 in the in the period of zero interest rate policy and money flowing freely was you know to just continue to use the source of capital that you've been using to fund the company which is generally venture capital dollars corporate equity to fund your first of a kind so talk a little bit about the sort of trade offs there whether you see that continuing to be a viable option and yeah, like how that, the availability and, and cost there is changing. I would say right now, they're financing first of kind, it's a menu of options. And I think the simplest option is financing it off your balance sheet. That's kind of the brute force method. I would kind of say it's almost like the Climeworks method where they raised a $600 million plus round in their Series F to go build Orca and then build Mammoth, which is their to, I say, near uh, utility scale or commercial scale DAC facilities. And I think the key issue behind that is one, not every company can raise a $600 million round. Two, if you raise a $600 million round, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because when you're raising $600 million, no matter what the valuation is, you're going to be diluting your company, the existing investors, and especially the founders and the team greatly. Right? And to me, I think that's one of the, that's a big risk. And right now, we're also now in a, you know, a much more expensive kind of capital-constrained environment. So to me, that's one of the, that's one of the big issues about doing on balance sheet. It can be done, but it's very expensive and it's, and it's difficult, right? And 
there's now more and more sources of non-dilutive kind of off-balancing financing that people need to explore and be honest, be more creative about how they do first of its kind. And I think, you know, most of my background, I came from the world of venture capital and growth equity, where financing is pretty simple, right? It's preferred equity. You may put some bells and whistles on it, but typically you don't spend too much time thinking about credit or thinking about structured finance or off-balance sheet items. It's just simply not part of the menu. And when I think about folk financing, it's, it's not like this fixed pathway or concrete recipe. I wish I could you know, give to all the founders and new CFOs out there saying, like, these are the 10 steps to get your folk financing done. It's really a new approach, right? It's, it's blended capital. It's using growth equity. It's using government finance. It's using catalytic capital. It's using infrastructure finance. It's, new, it's new, a lot of new thinking, and it's a lot of creativity. And, and I think, for me, one of the key things to understand about folk financing is that you need to embrace government as a strategic partner and be able to look for new non-dilutive capital sources, including a lot of this catalytic capital there, like, you know, Breakthroughs Catalyst Program. Yeah, let's talk about some of those others, right? So, uh, you know, just to reframe it again, uh, financing on your balance sheet is an option if you have that option available to you. Some companies do, some companies don't. Even if it is available to you, it may be suboptimal because of the cost of that capital, the dilution that it delivers to you, the post-money valuation that you're going to have to earn your way into in the next round and so on. And so if you can avoid it there and the other options are tenable, you may go for the other options. So let's talk about what some of the other options are. You, you I think, breezed through a few of them. I want to spend a little bit more time on a couple. Let's talk about the government side of it. You, you mentioned that. That's obviously one that has been pretty ripe for the past couple of years, thanks in part to the infrastructure bill, which deployed a lot of money, and then the IRA, which deployed a lot of money as well. So in the U.S. and in Europe to some extent too, you know, the world of sort of like non-dilutive or mostly non-dilutive government funding is is richer than it was, but also kind of idiosyncratic and sort of depends what you're doing. So what have you seen as successful mechanisms to use government funding to deliver first of a kind? So I would say right now, what I think the big game changer is that government now has literally hundreds of billions of dollars available for first of its kind, both through the DOE's LPO program, which I helped run back in the day, as well as now new programs from, you know, for DAC hub funding or hydrogen hub funding, which is measured in the tens of billions of dollars. And I think the key thing is that government is now really just a, is viewed as a strategic ally. And not only is government willing to you know, partner with the private sector, the private sector is willing to kind of partner with government. And I think the two ways that you can really leverage government as your partner for folk is one, working with OSED and other parts of the DOE to do your pilot slash first of kind funding, as well as applying to the LPO. I think the LPO now with IRA money is, you know, has about $400 billion in resources. And I think they've become, for lack of a better word, must-see TV or the key stop for any company that's doing an ambitious climate tech, hard tech startup, whether it's, whether it's you know, changing mobility, changing hydro, green hydrogen, or even green cement. Okay, so there's government funding. Obviously, if you could tap into that, that's, that's generally attractive. Um, you also mentioned other sort of catalytic capital 
sources like Breakthrough Catalyst, and there are a few others out there. How do you think about them as as fitting into the mix here? I think they're very important because I think for building these new blended capital stacks, we're going to be looking at it's going to be a portion of growth equity, it's going to be a portion of strategic equity, it's going to be a por- portion of maybe some debt and kind of credit or structured finance. But there needs to be this what I call flexible capital that can be equity, it can be debt, it can be something in between, it can be a loan loss reserve that can get these deals done. I think one of the great best examples is Breakthrough Catalyst's program that put in $50 million of grant money to build Lanza Jet's Freedom Pines facility, which I think is you know the biggest and first kind of sustainable aviation fuel facility being built out in the U.S. Right? And we need kind of more of that. And you know, and I give kudos to Gates and Mario, who's running the Catalyst program for running what I think is probably mo- the one of the most important platforms for getting first of its kind facilities done. There are a number of other kind of uh, entities jumping in. I think Just Climate, which came from Generation, my old kind of uh, place I used to love working at, was they're doing, you know, catalyzing transformational solutions. They are taking, trying to back early, high-impact climate solutions. And then I'm noticing that a lot of family offices were leaning into this as well. So Creo, which is a syndicate of family offices leaning into climate, as well as other family offices are saying, please show us the deals that need, that need flexible capital to get deals done and given to our resources, we're willing to do that. And returns, for lack of a better word, are secondary. Right. I mean, that's the fundamental characteristic of this, this category of catalytic capital, which is that it is often semi-concessionary. Right. Like it's generally return seeking, but it is not expecting above market returns. It is not promising to its LPs or its investors that this is going to be the best return on the planet. There is a there's an additional consideration that is at the forefront, which is which is impact. And and it, it this is an area where I think the impact is or at least can be quite large. And so it's it's somewhere in between, I think, of the sort of pure private sector, like return seeking money, the government, which is generally not return seeking you know, like put an asterisk on stuff like the LPO, which which does expect to get returns. But somewhere in between there is this sort of like private catalytic capital world. There's one other category though I do, I do want to talk about too, which is the emergence of strategics um, or customers for that matter, who are willing to bear some of that first of a kind risk because they are so hungry to get new products into the market. I've seen some of that that's actually been pretty powerful with some of our portfolio companies where like historically the first of a kind, they would have had to finance it themselves and they would have gone through this whole rigmarole. But instead, if they have sufficient evidence and the customer has sufficient need, they're able to basically say, look, you pay for it to the customer. Um, How much of that do you see out there? So I think when we're trying to look, you know, at the history of folk, the first few folk deals that were done were done with strategics, right? So to me, I think one of the best kind of climate OGs is Lancetech. They've been doing carbon value before carbon value was even a term. And they built their first three to four plants by working, by working with strategics, by licensing their technologies with steel companies in China to build real, real projects at scale. And then I think a second example is strategists can also be, I would say, kind of the integrated partner. 
Um, one example that I've used a lot in the past is LNG. So LNG now is a very mature project infrastructure market. But you know, say 10 plus years ago, it was not that. Strategics came in and were there both the sponsor, the developer, the off-taker, and sometimes even providing the supply. And this is something, you know, what I've been kind of talking with a lot of these you know, climate tech startups is that strategists can be that powerful for you. We've been using this LNG example a lot when we talk about kind of green hydrogen, blue hydrogen. Can you find a strategic that can do all those things for you? Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events or click the link in the show notes. Okay, so these are various flavors that you can sort of mix and match and try to combine. And, you know, it depends on, in some ways, it depends on the scale of your first of a kind, like how complicated it needs to be, I think. You know, there are companies for whom first of a kind is a, a few million dollars or 10 or $20 million or something like that. Very different equation if that's true versus if you're building a steel plant or a cement plant or something that is going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars. It's obviously more complex, more capital, and and you probably need to tap into more of these sources. But I think there are some semi-universal lessons from all of this that earlier stage companies can probably employ as to how they should be preparing for first of a kind and what they what you're going to need to have in place. Like there's a checklist that is pretty universal about the things that make a thing financeable regardless of the source of financing. So kind of walk me through at the high level. Like if you're advising a series A technology company, they haven't built a first of a kind yet, they know they're going to need to in the next few years, like what are the things they need to be thinking about immediately? Okay, well, I think for the last few years, I've been doing a lot of what I call folk or project finance 101 with uh, this generation of climate tech startups. And it's kind of been refined to this short checklist. I think the first thing, you need to start thinking about your folk project at the Series A. These projects take years to get ready and then take years to build and finance. So you want to start this early. This needs to be part of your business plan. It needs to be part of your board, regular board discussions. All right? And one of the things that I'm really encouraged by is that this generation of kind of climate unicorns are starting to do that. So like my friends at Arbor Energy, who are bringing kind of SpaceX technology to biomass, they've already embraced this and made this part of their strategic plan. You know, as well as, you know, Antora, who's doing really smart industrial decarbonization through heat batteries is also kind of embracing this type of approach. So I think that's the first thing, is make this par a priority, part of your business plan. I think the second thing is that you need to actually get project finance and project development DNA into your firm. Like, I think that old analogy that people talk about, you know, venture capital, it's like, what are the top three things you pick in a, in a, for a venture capital startup? It's team, team, team. 
This applies also to folk. You need the people who have project finance and project development experience in your company in order to do first-of-kind projects. And I think a good example is, you know, a friend of mine at Sublime. So Sublime is doing true zero green cement. They hired my friend Becky, who was a veteran from SunPower and a veteran from Avangrid. So she's an expert on how to do solar and wind. And now she's applying to how can you apply those best practices and project development solar wind to a totally new sector, which is green cement. And like, I think there's this really good analogy from the world of Chinese art. For many Chinese artists, in order for them to start doing abstracting, do their own thing, they first have to be experts and be able to reproduce what their master's done down to the stroke. And then you can start kind of innovating and disrupting off that. And I think that's kind of important too. Like you need to first really understand the fundamentals of project finance and project development. And then from there, you can move on and say, how can we then apply these things to new sectors like hydrogen or to green cement or thermal batteries? So start planning it early, get project finance DNA into your company early. I agree with both of these things, by the way. Um, I think all the best companies, you know, sort of either inherently knew this or figured it out pretty quickly. Then there's the actual what do you what do you need to like what what do you need to show with regard to your technology before you do the first of a kind such that you can do the first of a kind such that you can finance the first of a kind like how do you think about that I, I think there are many things to do but there are two main things I would focus first is you have first have to de-switch your technology with pilots and I'm emphasizing the word plural um, mainly projects that I'm looking at are trying to go straight from lab scale to utility scale. So they're trying to scale 30x, 100x. That is very hard to be seen as bankable in the project finance and infrastructure markets. So I think a good example of someone who's done a good job of being a measured approach to, to growth is Climeworks. You know, like in 2012, they built a demo. A few years later, they did a bigger demo. 2017, they did their first commercial scale. And now, like a few years ago, they did Orca, and now they're going to be doing Mammoth. So they took multiple steps to get to commercial scale. While a lot of the startups now, they're trying to go straight past Go and go from, you know, let's say, use the analogy, you know, a few thousand tons to a million tons. And that's just hard. I have, I have this is an interesting one. Uh, it's very situation specific, I think, but I have, I have sort of mixed feelings about this one. On one hand, you know, obviously the sort of like incremental, the, the traditional incremental scale up, which is basically like every next step is one order of magnitude bigger than the previous step. That is like a tried and true way to scale up technologies. And if you can do it and everything else works out, it makes a lot of sense to me. And Climeworks is a good example of that. On the other hand, that timeline that you just described for Climeworks was extremely long. And I think a lot of companies right now would look at that and say, oh, my investors are not going to sit around and wait for me to scale up for a decade. And so they're sort of trying to figure out how to short circuit that process. And though going from lab scale to full commercial scale almost never makes sense, I do think that some entrepreneurs that I've seen take as gospel this notion of the uh, order of magnitude to scale up at that isn't necessarily true to their technology, right? The, the real question should be, what is the next scale that I need to, 
do to prove out my technology, to prove the to prove it works, to prove the cost down, whatever whatever are the big open questions. And that may indeed be one order of magnitude each time you build a new thing. It may be that you can scale up faster than that, but you you need to ask it from that context, not just sort of start from the perspective of like, okay, this is how it works. I go from, you know, Tenth of a ton to a ton to a hundred to ten tons to a hundred tons to a thousand tons to a million tons. I totally agree, but I think again it has to be specific to that technology, right? And sometimes you can rush through. But for me, I'm trying to take the the perspective of the person on the other side of the table that who isn't a venture capitalist. It's someone who is a project financier, who is an independent engineer, or a, a debt provider. They're going to be having these same exact questions, saying like. You can't do a 30x scale up. And then the burden of proof is on the startup to say how they can do that. And what I think for me, I'm trying to say is that you don't have to have four or five steps to get to commercial scale, but it's hard to go from lab to commercial scale in one go. Yeah, I think that's right. So there, then there's the element of, of what do you have to prove with the technology? And, and obviously there's way more detail to that. Just like having a pilot in and of itself isn't, or having multiple pilots, as you said, is, is insufficient, right? It's the question of performance of those pilots and uptime and cost and all these things. But set, set that aside. Um, the other category here that I think is important to talk about is customers. Because the other thing that like your, your future project finance provider, infrastructure investor, whoever it is, cares about is like, how firm is the offtake for the things that, that you're building, um, and what is the willingness to pay? What is the creditworthiness of the offtaker, et cetera? So, how do you think of uh, offtake for a first of a kind? Like, what is required there? I think the first thing you have to understand what your commercial model is for your your first of a kind plant. Right? You need to go out and get agreements, as you said. You know, offtake and. You know, I think everyone is looking for the equivalent of a 20-year PPA because that is very bankable. So people are looking for that for, you know, direct air capture and their carbon credits. They're looking at that for various green molecules. So that is, that is fantastic. But I think this is where kind of the rub lies. Many markets that need to be carbonized don't work on long-term contracts. They're spot. They're merchant. Right? How do you figure out that solution? Right? And this is where I'm, you know, it's great about having entrepreneurs and their animal spirits. They're creative and persistent on trying to figure out how to hack this part of the problem. Right? How can we turn a commodity market that is spot and merchant into long-term agreements? And this is like some of my friends at these, some of these green cement companies, they're realizing what they're producing for green cement is a premium product where buyers, especially you know, a lot of the large tech companies, are willing to create, change the, the commercial model of offtake, spot, merchant to long-term contracts. There's also interesting hybrids there too, right? Like I think sustainable aviation fuel is one of the more interesting categories with this right now, where you're starting to see these trilateral agreements where there was actually one announced just just recently with with Infinium uh and I can't remember who it was American Airlines and Citigroup or something like that basically you have a customer who ultimately wants to reduce their scope 3 emissions and is willing to pay to do that 
wants to buy the credits from the sustainable aviation fuel. You have an airline sitting in the middle who's responsible for buying jet fuel. That jet fuel obviously is generally on spot and those prices move. And then you have a producer who needs to finance a facility of one kind or another. And I don't know what that specific contract structure was, but you could imagine either the end customer, Citigroup in this case, says, I'll pay a fixed price uh, for a long time, or they could say, I'll pay a fixed premium for a long time or something like that. Either way, providing some measure of visibility into to the to the um, asset that is that is building the or developing the uh, sustainable aviation fuel such that you can finance the thing. But but as you're saying, sort of like, and we see this in other sectors too, right? Like fertilizer is another one. People are trying to produce green ammonia. Ammonia, also a category that is generally not long-term contracted. And so you have to figure out how to how to like get around that. So I think this is where you kind of bring in the world of like Wall Street, where people are used to slicing and dicing financial products. <laughs> and this is what we're starting, and they're bringing this world to climate tech, where I'm seeing, you know, green, again, let's listen to green cement, um, example, where they're selling the green cement at a price, but they're then slicing off the carbon neutral attributes and selling that to another customer at a different price. And this is one way I think you need to be creative and be persistent, right? These are new models, and this allows you to buy the time to buy down the green premium as you scale up your f- facilities. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the idea of book and claim for some of these novel technologies, right? Find the buyer who's willing to pay. That may not be the immediate customer of the first of a kind thing. You know, use financial engineering to sort of solve for that. Um, And as long as everything is above board and well counted and measured and verified and so on, I think it's actually a a pretty good mechanism to to get this stuff built. Um, So you've got some various flavors of like customer demand, offtake, whatever. I think a big part of the message, by the way, so far across the board, whether it's like how you're going to finance the thing, how you're going to find the customers, et cetera, is like, is is a fair amount of creativity. And that's one of the, I mean, it, it, it's a good thing. It's also probably a challenge, right? To what extent, I guess stepping back, do you see there as being like a, a repeatable playbook versus to what extent is every first-of-a-kind thing for a different thing going to be a unique snowflake that's going to require a bunch of time and effort and expertise to sort of figure out? Going back to like my biology roots, I think there's a good analogy from that. There's this kind of concept when you look at biology when they say it's uniform diversity of pattern. And I think this is, applies to folk, where there are going to be certain guidelines that go across all sectors and all verticals, but how it's actually implemented for each specific folk, where it's a green hydrogen folk or a green cement folk or a green steel folk, it's going to be specific to that sector and specific to that company. And I think the second thing is that what we're trying to do now is build a folk asset class. And as you get more and more dedicated investors in folk, it'll become easier and easier because they will have their own pattern recognition of what they're looking for. And, and to me, like one of the things that I'd like to add as an important part of the checklist for being making your projects folk bankable is that a lot of these CFOs and CEOs of these new climate tech startups have to learn the language of infrastructure and product, project finance. 
And specifically, they have to be able to code switch from speaking VC language is disruptive innovation, home runs, you know, power log, to saying it's this is proven off-the-shelf technology. There is no binary technology risk. Oh, we're totally investment grade. We'll pay back the loan and have a debt service cover ratio that's approaching two. Right? I think those are the things that you need to be able to do as one of the key parts of being able to build your folk project. It's interesting. You could build like a, glo- a glossary of um, vocabulary that is like applicable to one financial audience and is uh, is banned when you're talking to a different financial audience. <laughs> I, have a, I have a cheat sheet, yeah. which I give to a lot of these entrepreneurs saying like, hey, this is what you can say when you're in front of a VC. This is what you can say when you're in front of a project financier. That's funny. Um, I guess final question for you. I mean, we've been talking about folk. You know, obviously the journey doesn't end at first of a kind. Then you have to build second, third, fourth, fifth, up to nth of a kind. And I think we should spend just a minute talking about that because I think for good reason, there is a lot of focus on first of a kind. But it's not like you go from first of a kind to now you're an infrastructure asset class like solar and wind are today that's like extraordinarily mature and cheap cost of capital and so on. There's a, there's an entire journey to go on after that. So how do you think about that next phase? You've built the first of a kind now. You succeeded and it's operating and it works. Like, what does the the next phase, getting from first of a kind to boring mature asset class, which is where you ultimately want to be, what does that journey look like? It's it's a journey, right? So first of a kind is important because it's the first step. And once you get your folk plant successfully built, then you can go to the next step, which is soak, which is second of kind and third of its kind. And at each step, the universe of soak. Thoke, 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 are getting larger and larger. Like for me, what I kind of talk with a lot of these climate tech entrepreneurs is that you want to move from the world of private equity and venture capital to the world of sovereign wealth funds and infrastructure investors. Investors that literally write $500 million, billion dollar checks. And to me, this transition is about you know thinking about creating, for lack of a better word, development companies, where once you prove out your project, and it's not necessarily the first kind will prove it, for many of these mainstream project financiers and infrastructure investors, they may not look at this stuff till it's project three. But then at project three, they can lean in, and these firms can write $500 million, billion dollar commitments to go build your fourth, fifth, and sixth plan. To me, like a lot of this future is, is, is kind of like systematic change. Like we need to have folk-driven strategies within global asset managers. We need to have folk allocation within infrastructure and private equity investors. And ultimately what you're playing for is some of these big mainstream exits. So I think when a lot of venture capitalists and uh, climate tech entrepreneurs think about an exit, it's, it's simply binary, right? It's either it's an IPO or a strategic sale. But there is this world of devcos and the world and the world of infrastructure that is also very attractive where you start building these development companies that are produ- that are developing gigawatts and gigawatts of clean energy and as these projects mature, they then sell sell them to then to sovereign wealth funds pension funds. And these types of, the dollars around this is incredible. Like, I think I was fortunate enough to 
to be kind of involved with the, the $3 billion Blackstone investment in Invenergy, which is one of the largest kind of IPPs and, and development companies. And they put $3 billion in just to own part of this, what I call this development machine. And I kind of think about a lot of these companies that are now coming up, these kind of next great climate tech leaders like Fervo, which is doing next generation geothermal. I think their future is being a development company for geothermal and producing gigawatts of power, clean 24-7 power. All right, David. Always much more to talk about in first of kind, or I'm sorry, Folkland. I'm gonna I'm gonna get used to using the acronym. Um, but this was a this is a great start. We'll uh, we'll dig in deeper later. And in the meantime, thank you so much for for joining. Thank you for having me. David Ye is, in his own words, a climate OG. Um, he's been in organizations from CIBC to the White House to Generation to many other places. This show is a co-production of Latitude Media and Canary Media. You can head over to canarymedia.com for links to today's topics. Latitude, as always, is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude backs visionaries accelerating climate innovation that will reshape the global economy for the betterment of people and planet. You can learn more at preludeventures.com. This episode is produced by Daniel Waldorf, mixing by Roy Campanella and Sean Marquand, theme song by Sean Marquand. I'm Shale Khan, and this is Catalyst. <laughs>